0: Hi, this is Jimmy LaSalle, and welcome once again to another podcast for History Repeated. Today, we're going to talk about how did political parties emerge and evolve over time. And once again, with us today, we have Gina Anzanakis, who will be sticking to the big two, the Republican and the Democratic Party.
1: Before I get into the beginnings and the evolution of political parties, I just want to really encourage people to read up on the two major political parties today if you are a republican if you are a democrat if you are an independent if you are a member of one of those smaller faction political parties go online and read up on the republican platform it's 66 pages it's lengthy but know what they support are you a republican know what you support Don't just throw around those three or four hot-button issues. In the same respect, if you are a Democrat, if you are an Independent, if you are of the age and eligible to vote and haven't registered to vote, read up on the Republican platform. Read up on the Democratic platform. What do they support? The Democratic platform, the last one in 2016, it was 55 pages long at their convention in 2020, they will put out a new platform, a new direction as to where this party is going. One of the things I'm going to discuss is where the parties have been, where they started out from, different um, shifts that occurred throughout our country's history that sometimes caused the parties to do an about face, to change their course. And That discussion can get a little dry because it's those factual lists of information of what happened. You know, I'm I'm always a little hesitant to, to give that discussion on what the Democrat Party is or what the Republican Party is because everybody is going to come forth with a bias. One of the best compliments I got as a teacher was when my kids would come up to me and they would say, you know, some days I think you're a Democrat and some days I think you're a Republican and some days I just can't plain tell. Good. I'm doing a good job because if I'm consistently giving both sides of the issue, I'm providing you with a way to get the information and for you to make up your own mind.
0: Okay. With that said, let's um, let's get into that drier stuff and, and hopefully we'll be able to have some fun along the way. We'll get into political parties, the the way they emerged and evolved into um, what they are today?
1: So, you know, political parties first began to emerge during the creation of the Constitution. Supporters of a strong central government became known as federalists, and those that preferred the individual states to have the majority of the power were known as Democratic Republicans. Um, If you fast forward a little bit, even to today, any news outlet that you watch has a political spin on it they're backed by a party so to speak and you know newspapers are backed by a certain political sway and it was no different during the constitutional conventions you have the federalists who have the federalist papers and they paint the democratic republicans as anti-federalists it was meant to be a jab and you know the nickname kind of stuck So, for our purposes today, we're going to stick to the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. During George Washington's presidency, political parties really began to take shape, even within his own cabinet. You have Thomas Jefferson, who is the Secretary of State, he is a Democratic Republican. You have John Adams, his vice president, he is a Federalist. And so, even within Washington's cabinet, You have two very different political views present and constantly hashing it out over the the issues that are arising for this new nation. And Washington warned of political parties in his farewell address. He felt they weakened the government and they caused division. This is way back when in 1796. It's almost as if the man had a crystal ball and he could look into it and see all the problems that were going to hit this new nation. By 1812, the Federalists were dissolved. They were non-existent. The Democratic-Republicans dominated politics. Many of the presidents actually hailed from Virginia at the time, and this is referred to as the Virginia Dynasty. And this would eventually end after the election of John Quincy Adams in 1824. Now the election of 1824 is actually very important. No one ran as a Federalist during the election of 1824, and you have five candidates who ran as Democratic-Republicans. And so this is going to spell disaster for both parties, actually. You have three major candidates here. You have uh, Andrew Jackson, who comes in first in the Electoral College, John Quincy Adams, who comes in second, Uh, In third place was a man by the name of William Crawford, and in fourth place was a man by the name of Henry Clay. Neither of those candidates won that magic number in the Electoral College. And from what we know from our previous podcast, it, of course, got sent to the House of Representatives. Henry Clay was actually the Speaker of the House. He hated Jackson, and he could not stand to see the presidency going to somebody that he hated. And so he kind of builds this coalition and the votes come in and John Quincy Adams is elected president. Jackson is furious. He vows to leave Washington, plan a strategy to defeat john quincy adams in the next election which of course he does john quincy adams suffers the same fate as his father he's a one-term president and the election of 1824 eventually becomes known as the corrupt bargain so this election which makes john quincy adams president over andrew jackson led to the creation of the democratic party in the election of 1828 we see the emergence of jacksonian Democracy. True to his word, Andrew Jackson comes back, he runs against John Quincy Adams, and he easily defeats him. Andrew Jackson is considered a supporter of the common man, and those property qualifications are taken away from voting, and it's what we call universal white manhood suffrage. So all white men over the age of 21, regardless of the fact whether or not they owned property, they could now vote. Sectional conflicts and opponents of Andrew Jackson led to the creation of the Whig Party. Andrew Jackson was sometimes referred to as King Andrew I. and so the Whig party, they would eventually elect two presidents: uh, William Henry Harrison and Zachary Taylor. The supporters of the Whig party tended to be business owners, wealthy white Southerners, urban middle class. The issue of slavery would eventually weaken the Whig Party, and many of its supporters joined the newly created Republican Party in the 1850s. And in order to understand why the Republican Party came to be in the 1850s, we have to go back in time a little bit and discuss some serious topics. In the 1850s, the issue of slavery really just divided the nation. You have Northern Democrats who were former Whigs and abolitionists, they created the, the Republican Party in 1854. Now, why was the Republican Party formed in the 1850s? Again, we have to go back in time. In the 18 in 1820, you have 22 states in the Union. You have 11 free states, 11 slave states, and Missouri wanted to join the Union as a free state. Well, you would think this would not be such a big deal, but it was. For the southern states, the Senate was the last place that southern states had an equal say as the northern states. And so if Missouri entered in as a free state, they would not have equal power or equal say anywhere in the federal government. And so a compromise was needed. It became known as the Compromise of 1820, and sometimes you'll hear historians refer to it as the Missouri Compromise. And so what happened... Is that Massachusetts willingly seceded some territory to create Maine? Maine entered as a free state, and Missouri joined the Union as a slave state. And this imaginary line was kind of drawn across the United States, and it became known as the 3630 parallel. Any territory that would enter the Union above that state had to enter as a free state. Any territory that would enter the Union below that line had to enter in as a slave state. The goal was to prevent further disputes. You have this line. If your territory, depending upon where it falls, it seemed as though it was a winner. You would enter free or slave, but that would only last so long. After the Mexican-American War in the 1840s, there is this vast new territory in the West. That 36-30 parallel is no longer going to cut it. Again, we see this issue of slavery causing great divide, but they can't deal with it head-on because they know if they deal with it head-on, al- head there's going to be a massive war. And so they compromise yet again. And so we see the Compromise of 1850. We get rid of the 3630 parallel, and we replace it with something called Popular Sovereignty, what popular sovereignty basically means is that settlers of a territory would have the opportunity to vote how that territory would enter the Union. Now, it seems like that would be a good idea, but it ended up being a disaster. Historically, this is known as the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. But what ended up having is you have pro-slavery pro-sla- settlers, you have free soil settlers kind of bum-rushing these territories in a head of the vote and it leads to massive violence the republican party wanted to prevent the spread of of slavery into the territories now we have to explain this a little bit so when abraham lincoln is running for president Depending upon where he was giving his talks, he changed his jargon a little bit. And it's no different to the way politicians give their speeches today, depending upon where they are in the continental United States. And so for Abraham Lincoln, when he began, it was wherever slavery exists, it can continue to exist, but it's not going to extend into the territories. For southern slaveholding states, this was basically a death warrant because they're going to have fewer votes than non-slave-holding states. So when Lincoln is elected president and the Civil War begins, he his ultimate goal is to preserve the Union. Whether it could be with keeping slavery or abolishing slavery, he wants to preserve the Union. And it becomes abundantly clear that they must preserve the Union by abolishing slavery. And so the Republican Party positions itself as the party that ends slavery. The party that will eventually pass a series of amendments, ultimately providing a significant amount of people with new voting rights. And those new voting rights will propel them to maintaining power over the federal government. When Abraham Lincoln wins the election of 1860 and becomes president, we of course know that the Civil War breaks out. In the post-Civil War era, Lincoln and the Radical Republicans passed a series of amendments. You have the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship, the 15th Amendment, which it's important to understand the wording. It stated that the right to vote can't be denied on the basis of race, color, previous condition of servitude, It never guarantees the right to vote. It kind of leaves that door open for those various Jim Crow laws, which would limit those newfound rights. And as a result, the Republicans dominate politics until 1932. Now, if you know anything about history, you know that 1932 is in the midst of the Great Depression. It's until FDR becomes president. The post-Civil War Democrats, okay, they oppose Republican measures and solidified the South. It's called the Solid South. They supported Jim Crow laws to limit the newly freed black citizens. By 1896, we see another political shift. It's the era of big business, colonial expansion. There are a series of economic depressions or panics. Smaller parties, like the populists, which most people, if you haven't studied history, you've probably never heard of, they begin to join the Democrats. They start to support the working class, sh- social justice reforms, progressive era issues like the temperance movement, which basically be, basically becomes the 18th amendment, prohibition, um, women's suffrage, for example. They support agrarian or farm issues and bigger government. The Republicans at this time are still dominating politics. They're aligned with the opposites, big business, industry, factory, urban, or city issues. So it gives you a little bit of an understanding as to why the Republicans dominate politics until 1932 and how after 1932 it's instead the Democrats that are going to be running the show. The Great Depression and the election of FDR bring an end to the dominance of the Republican Party. New Deal policies shifted the support base. During the Great Depression, people were begging Herbert Hoover, please do something. And when FDR, a Democrat, becomes president, he starts doing anything that he can. He passes those New Deal policies. He didn't care what worked as long as something worked. And so people supported the party. By the 1960s, we see another shift due to the civil rights movement, civil rights reforms, and many white Southerners joined the Republican Party. And it kind of brings us here to present day. Why do certain groups of people, certain geographic areas within the United States, why do they tend to be blue? Why do they tend to be red?
0: Okay, very cool. Now. What do these parties look like today, and how have the Democratic and Republican parties been able to stand the test of time?
1: Well, I think it's important to discuss, you know, why political parties are still relevant. You know, a a political party is essentially a, a, a group of people who share a common ideology. They share the same position on certain topics. Political parties, every presidential year, at their convention, create their party's platform. A platform is a list of all of the issues, all of the topics, and where that particular political party stands on them. For the last election year in 2016, the RNC put out a political platform that was 66 pages long the dnc in 2016 they put out a platform that was 55 pages long most people are not going to read through such an extensive document they should but most people are not going to and so when people tend to talk about the republican party today they tend to talk about the democratic party today they talk about certain key hot button issues so if you talk to most Republicans, they're going to, for the most part, and because I don't want to generalize anybody, but for the most part, any Republican is going to be pro-life. They are going to support fully the Second Amendment. They're not going to want to see any sort of limitations on the Second Amendment. They're going to support smaller government. They're going to support you know, increased military spending, for example. If you look at the Democratic Party, it's going to be essentially the opposite for the most part. Instead of being pro-life, they're going to be pro-choice. They're going to support same-sex marriage. They're going to support things like DACA and, you know, pathways to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. They're going to support policies to help the impact of climate change. And so when you look at political parties today, you look at where they stand, I don't think most political parties today embrace where they have come from. If they did, I think they would lose the majority of their supporters because their supporters would realize, hey, the team I'm currently on would probably have voted against my interests a generation ago. Well,
0: let's grab that same-sex marriage there. I think think most... I think it's wrong to say that most republicans would be against it i know you know you have different classifications within any party you have your your extremes on either side you know um, more moderate republicans or democrats are probably going to be closer to the middle where they you know maybe the more moderate democrats want stricter immigration laws and more moderate republicans are you know we're fine with with uh, with gay marriage we're fine with most of this other stuff just i think i think the problem is that the extremes pushing their views onto everybody else is where people get a little jammed up
1: you know i don't think when you talk to people who are very much so a part of a party whether it's the democratic party whether it is the republican party you know terms tend to get lost in translation People throw around terms, but they don't fully understand their meaning. What does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be more liberal? And people have used those terms as an attack. Oh, you're a liberal. Oh, you're a conservative. You must be this because you are a member of that party. And so I would venture to say that we're seeing shifts in both political parties. I think within the Democratic Party for example you're seeing if you look at the at the state we're in right now with the primary between you know Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders you have
0: everybody else dropped out now.
1: well (laughs) that's who we're left down with so you have Biden who is definitely more of a moderate you have Bernie Sanders who's certainly more to the left and just like what happened in 2016 when Bernie Sanders did not get Democratic Party's nomination over Hillary Clinton, you saw Hillary Clinton and the DNC absorb some of his ideas, some of his platform. And it's it's very interesting to see what's going to happen again in 2016. I think if you look at in most, I mean in 2020, yes. Yeah. If you look at the issue, I think most people who are Democrats support health care, universal health care. I think most people who are Democrats recognize the fact that the cost of college tuition has become astronomical. And I would say most people probably wouldn't support free college tuition, but I think most people are saying we need to address how much money this is costing, how much debt people are going into to get a degree. And when they are out in the workforce, they can't get a job. And so these issues are very important. And that's what what is going to be interesting to see is what happens at the next convention. Where will each party's platform go? Are we going to see the RNC continue to embrace President Donald Trump? In the last platform, 66 pages of their platform, they consistently invoked Trump's name. Will they continue to do that? Will we see them kind of distance themselves a little bit from President Trump in the hopes of gaining more supporters and not losing more
0: votes? Well, I th- you know, you brought up an interesting topic with the um, the cost of college, but I would go to say, you know, people can't get a job afterward, but what is it that they are majoring in? You know, going and majoring in something like, I don't know, philosophy and, there, there are not many job prospects for a philosopher. You want to go and think and write a book, and you know, maybe in 200 years people will find your thoughts interesting, but you're going to be living in your mom's basement and you're going to have some debt. You know, there's, there's got to be a better way of you know, going and learning these things, not necessarily majoring them and going into $200,000 worth of debt.
1: You know, I think you, if you look at it from the place that we are currently at right now, we are in the midst of a quarantine college campuses are closed k-12 to schools are closed how are people learning um, it's going to be very interesting to see if we continue on this road of online learning for the most part for higher education for college courses i can tell you from my own experience as a high school teacher Not every student is going to college, and that's fine. Not every student should. I think that as a country, we have put trades off to the side as being unimportant. They are incredibly important. We have to do a better job of preparing people to provide, provide for themselves, provide for a family someday if they choose to have one. And that goes with an education. It doesn't always mean a philosophy degree or a degree in STEM. It could mean a degree in engineering. It could be a degree in how to fix pipes and become a plumber and be an electrician and be a mechanic. You can't get a plumber to come to your house. You can't find an electrician to come to your house. I see it all the time. People, do you know a good plumber? Do you know a good electrician? And education comes in various forms. And I think that when people talk about issues, most people are pretty moderate. I think most people want to be able to provide for themselves. They want to provide for their families. And they're not necessarily always reading into the rhetoric. In the same sense, I think we also have people who just jump on a train. I'm on the Republican train. I'm on the Democrat train. Why are you on that train? What forced you? What compelled you to get on that train car as opposed to another one? Do you really know what your political party pushes for? And I think if you listed the issues that the RNC's platform discusses and if you listed the issues that the DNC's platform discusses, Most people wouldn't have a clue. People tend to vote on three or four major issues.